This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves on May 16th. It is available for pre-order now in ebook, audiobook, and hardcover. My guest today, Larry Loftus. He is a nonfiction author. His latest is The Watchmaker's Daughter. It was an honor to talk to him. Such a great guy. So now, without further ado, Larry Loftus. Bam! How you doing? I don't have my new hardcover yet. It's still at my mail drop, so I have the uh, early edition. Uh, I'm sure it is. It's uh, because I saw that you sent it, and uh, we don't check that one every day. But um, this is uh, I got the my early edition right here, my galley copy that you were so kind to to send my way. And let me blurb because it was uh, amazing. I think it's my best blurb, by the way. I think that was the uh, the best blurb I've ever written was for the Watchmaker's Daughter. (laughs) <laughs> no question. No question. So when you look on the back of the book, who's at the top is yours. Oh, man. Awesome. Awesome. So when you go on Amazon, the first one they list is yours because they, you know, my editor said the same thing. This is the best, the best blurb. So let's go with this one. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Awesome. We got your jujitsu shirt on there. Nice. Well, yeah. In fact, I was going to tell you, um, you know, since our segue, when we get started. Oh, we're I, going. I, we're going. We're rocking. Let's go. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you remember, we met back in 2019 at the Savannah Book Festival. Yep. I was speaking in the morning. You were speaking in the afternoon. So I went to uh, yours and then talked to you afterwards. And I said, Jack, you know, do you know who William Fairbairn is? Was and you said, Oh, of course. And for those that don't know the name, he's the founder of Hand to Hand Combat, and more particularly since Jack is a connoisseur of sharp objects. Nice. Whoa, that's a nice one. This is yeah. I mean, this is World War II right here. No way. Yeah, that is. This was probably used to cut some throats. That's uh, amazing. Where'd you get that? Because this is a uh, 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 Bechtel forging company right here, and it's uh, his take on uh, you know modern okay. take on no, uh, on is, that. This is the real deal. Uh, I got it. Believe it or not, online on eBay. I just kept looking. I'm like, somebody has to have one. And the you can see over here a little bit Sheffield, England. And I thought it had the date. I think it's 1943, but you can see this thing is ancient. Nice. However, it is still razor sharp. No way. Both on the sides and on the tip. No and, kidding. And this could do the same damage today that it did back then. Wow. And I don't know if you saw it when I posted it, but this knife has been in two movies that I'm aware of, maybe more. But in um, Where Eagles Dare, I think it was 1968. Like that exact knife, that exact blade. This exact knife. Whoa. This is what Clint Eastwood takes out the German sentry with. Nice. And Where Eagles Dare, maybe the greatest World War II movie ever. I mean, that was like like from the props department, like that knife. Apparently. I mean, they had this. There's no question. It was a close shot. And Clint Eastwood pulls it out, grabs the German, and sticks it, you know, in the side of his neck. And nice. it's the clearest day that this is the knife. And then later they show him cleaning blood off of it. Again, it's the knife. And then if you watched the James Bond movie, You Only Live Twice with Sean Connery, this knife again was used to kill 
uh, Sean Con or James Bond's MI6 contact in Japan. No way. So who then? Who then later? Who then later shows up in uh, Diamonds Are Forever? Um, right. The same actor. But um, man, that is amazing. That is so cool. Somebody sent me one from England, um, and I, I said, "Hey, you know, please keep this in your family." And he insisted yeah. on sending it, and he sent me one, and it's it's upstairs. But uh, I said, "Hey, anytime you or anyone in your family wants this back, I will send it right back to you." But I'll I'll just consider myself, uh, uh, you know, a, a guardian of it uh, for the yeah. time being. So I have that, um, and it's uh, it, it I forget if it has the date on it, but it has um, where it was made, the leather anyway. Um, yeah. anyway, it's really cool. I need to look up, look a little more into that specific one, but, uh, but it's from, from the UK and from world war two time period. It had been in this family the whole time. It's very light. How is that one? Yeah, it's, I mean, this is the original. It's perfectly balanced, uh, but relatively light. Yeah. But you, I mean, it's, this thing will last outlast us for sure. Amazing. I mean, this thing is amazing. Wow. But if you remember, I, we had talked about Fairbairn. And I didn't get a chance to mention because it wasn't really relevant at the time. But now that you're buddies with Joe Rogan, I can tell you the founder of uh, judo, Jigoro Kano, uh, judo and jujitsu originally were together. And, and you can test Joe Rogan on this because I bet he doesn't know it. But Kano Jigoro uh, not only trained judo and jujitsu, but he also trained William Fairbairn. Oh, wow. William Fairbairn was his first non-Japanese black belt. And then, uh, of course, Fairbairn later goes and trains all of the, you know, our commandos and spies and so forth, MI6, SOE. But uh, back then, jujitsu and and uh, judo were together. And then one of one of Jigoro's uh, students, Maeda, I think is how you say it, his, his name, went to Brazil. And he trained two brothers, Carlos and Helio Gracie, the whole Gracie movement that came out of that. But it all starts with Conal Jigoro and William Fairbairn, who had his black belt before the Gracies did. That's incredible. No so way. There's a William Fairbairn. And uh, so see if you can stump Joe Rogan on that one. I'll ask him. I'll ask him. And uh, in this, you'll like this next book then. So Only the Dead comes out May 16th. And uh, there just might be... Uh, it's not this exact knife. I, I went with the OS. Well, I don't know how much I should give away here, but, uh, let's just say there may be an OSS stiletto in there, nice. which is just slightly different, uh, from this, from, from back in the day. But the, uh, uh, the, the leather for it, uh, the sheath was very different than the, than the other sheaths. It's like a spatula almost. It looks, uh -huh. it's really, it's, it's really interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to try to track one down. If I can't find a real one, I'll, I'm going to get a reproduction of it. But, uh, yeah, it just may play a part in this uh, upcoming novel. That's perfect. In fact, behind me somewhere in my bookshelf, I, when I was doing research for, uh, the second book, Codename Lease, Peter Churchill and Odette Sampson were SOE and SOE was basically a sabotage first spy agency. Second, um, Fairbairn trained him. But uh, they this there's a book that has all of the weapons that the SOE used, oh, nice. including the secret cool things like one of the things they would do is the the British would pack uh, C4. Uh, they would take a dead rat and they would cut the, the whole inside of the rat out, the intestines and everything. They would take it out and then they would take C4 and put it in and sew the rat back up. And then they would give it to a resistance person in France or anywhere. And that person would throw it on a train that the Germans would be using to take weapons or, or soldiers or whatever. 
and they would just, you know, somebody would just drop it on the, you know, by the conductor on the ground. And they knew that the conductor would take a shovel and throw the rat into the fire. And then the whole train would blow up. Oh, so I was just, so they've got a, in this book, they've got this drawing of how they did it with, there was a fuse. The fuse came out. The tailpipe was right under the tail. Uh-huh, the tail yeah. the back. So just brilliant. Those guys that, you know, MI nine that figured out how to do all this stuff were just geniuses. Wow. That's amazing. Um, is, is the book new you're talking about? Cause there is a new book out with about, uh, uh, SOE or OSS weapons, maybe both. I ordered it. It's not here yet, but I think there's a, there's a new book that, uh, details some of those weapons from, from back yeah, in no, the day. No, this is an old one and okay. I've got it. It's somewhere on my, on my shelf over there, but I can, I can send you the name of it, but yeah, it was, please do. It was great. In fact, I cited to it and, um, in Codename Lease, I cited to it because there were a lot of cool, very cool weapons that they uh, that they used. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'd love to get that name from you because if if, uh, if I don't have it, yeah. I'll uh, I will add it to the library because um, yeah. I like weaving some of that history into the into the novels, as you know. Uh, what, what, what number of book is this for you? So, the Watchmaker's Daughter is number four. Nice. And um, you know, and the reason, in fact, we we met at the Savannah Book Festival, but I think you and I were at the International Thriller Writers Conference. The year before, I believe. 2018. In, in 20, I'm trying to think if I went in 2018. I think I did. I think I went 2018, 2019. Like I think I've been twice. And I'm coming again so this, I, this, uh, this May. I wanted to go to those because I wanted to write, and I write, nonfiction thrillers. So while I have to study all the World War II stuff to find out what actually happened and what people did and what they said and so forth, I wanted to structure all of my books as thrillers. So I had to immerse myself nice. into the, the thriller genre. So over here on, on the right side are, are are just all thriller books. And you can see uh, in the blood there squeezed in between Vince Flynn and uh, um, John Buchan, who, oh, wow. who you know wrote, I guess, the first thriller, uh, The 39 Steps. Oh, anyway, goodness. so I went to I started plugging into the to ITW to kind of learn the the thriller genre. And so I just combine combine the both. So the nice. other books, uh, which are here above me, the first one, that's the hardcover right there. For Into the Lion's Mouth, there's the paperback yeah, over there. I got that one right here. Yeah. Boom, Into the Lion's Mouth right here. I have the others, but they're just like, I couldn't find them at the last second because we moved. And so there's still some things in books, you know, in boxes. Okay. But okay. Um, yeah, that's, uh, man, yeah, that's so this awesome. was This was actually the Watchmaker's Daughter is the first one where I don't have a spy. Okay. Uh, because the first three, I was I was all dealing with just World War II spies. So Popoff was an MI6 agent operating in Portugal. Uh, Odette Samson and Peter Churchill were operating in Fran- SOE agents operating in France. And Aline Griffith in the Princess Spy was an OSS agent, also trained by Fairbairn, nice. with this knife. And I Amazing. know that firsthand because in the National Archives at College Park, Maryland, I, ha- I-, I saw and took a scan the actual training that they went through. And of course he taught all of the close combat, but he also taught a class and it's clear as a bell, knife fighting. Nice. There was a class on knife fighting with this knife. Awesome. So anyway, um, I for the next book, I, I wanted a different spy agency and I wanted a different country, but I covered all the, <laughs> yeah. I covered all the spy agencies, you know, MI5, MI6, SOE, OSS. Um, but I I had come across uh, the story of Ori um, Ten Boom because when I was doing research for Codename Lease, a friend of mine said, "Hey, 
you need to read the hiding place about Corey Ten Boom. I said, why? She said, because she was at Ravensbrook, the concentration camp for women, at the same time that Odette Sampson was there. And my character, being a spy, had already been condemned to death. They put her in a bunker. She would be executed at some point in time, but she was underground. She saw nothing of what was going on in the camp. Well, Corey Ten Boom was on the outside of the camp in a barracks. So she got to see day to day what happened, you know, the roll call, the beatings, just all that stuff. So it gave me a good perspective. So when it was time for me to come around to book four, I was thinking, okay, I want a new country. I want a new spy agency. I've covered all the spy agencies. And my mind kept going back to Corey's story. She wasn't a spy, but she and her family were involved in the Dutch resistance. And if you get caught, the consequences are basically the same. Mm. Either you're going to be executed or you're going to be sent to prison or a concentration camp, which she was. She and her family uh, you know, were first sent to prison and then to concentration camps. So I just thought this would be great. It'll be a new country, the Netherlands, which I'd not covered in any of my prior books. Um, and it would give me a perspective of the Dutch resistance and, and what, what was going on there. Yeah. So that's how I came up with this fourth book. Amazing. Um, and yeah, Thriller Fest, I always recommend people go to Thriller Fest um, and VoucherCon uh, when they're trying to uh, to break in or find an agent or uh, just or they want to write, you know, whatever, whatever what stage you're at. Uh, I think that is a, a good investment of your time if you want to be uh, an author or you have something and you want to get it published. Um, they have those agent speed dating things. And I know a yes. few people who that's worked for. Is that uh, right? Yeah, essentially you go in and I think, I don't know how many people, let's just say, let's just say 30. Um, 30 agents sitting down and you have, let's say two or three minutes with each one. And so you line up and the first 30, take the, take the seats and it's go. And then every three minutes you rotate around. And, uh, I know a bunch of people and a bunch, few people that have met their agent that way. And they say, Hey, here's my card. Please send me your first chapter or whatever you have, or, you know, let me see a little more. And, uh, and then it's developed into, um, you know, agent client relationships and published books. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's really cool. So I, I recommend people go to that, um, because you certainly won't find an agent that way if you don't go right. <laughs> and, and do right. that. And uh, I did it the hard way. I did it where you just blanket all of the agents that work in your genre and hope something sticks. You know, your, your, your query letter goes into what they call the slush pile uh-huh. because they get a hundred a week or 200 a week or 500 a week. And it just goes into the slush pile and it's very difficult to get out of the slush pile. So, uh, yeah, how did you yeah, get, it, how did you, how did you get out of the slush pile? Did you get that, uh, book of agents that comes out every year that looks like the SAT prep no, books for those who, uh, came of age in the eighties called uh, query tracker ah. query tracker has all of the, it's great. Cause it has all of the agents. It shows the genres that they work in and then it shows some of their notable authors. Oh, wow. So you can see, well, Hey, I want the agent that Jack Carr has. So I'm going to, you know, and, 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 it, and you can basically paying anybody you want. But again, the odds are against you because there's so many people trying to get published. So it took me longer to get an agent than it did to write into the lion's mouth. Oh my gosh. So, so, so you wrote it first. So you had the whole thing written first before you yeah, had an agent? I, when I just, I decided, you know, back like you, you know, your story where you're in the military, but you know that you want to eventually write these thriller books. I was a lawyer but knew that I eventually wanted to do this, at least starting in 2012, when another lawyer friend of mine handed me a a set of CDs that had uh, Vince Flynn's, I think it was American Assassin, but it had one of Vince Flynn's books on there. 
and I was just spellbound. George Guidall, is that his his name? The the narrator. narrator, yeah. Fabulous. And I was just hooked. So from that point on, I, I ordered all of Vince Lynn's books, read them, studied them. Um, but this I eventually get to an agent through this query tracker. And I I had basically done a, a rough draft of, of the novel. I'd written it as historical fiction because it was about Dusko Popov, who was the influence inspiration for Bond. Yeah. How did you how did you find how did you decide this is going to be how you start down this path? Like what was uh, out of all the things you could have chosen? Why? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's great. It's an it's an amazing story. And I love it, of course, for the for the for the James Bond uh, reference. But you took a different take on it than uh, than most people have. And you did it in a different way. Um, out of all the things that you could have written about, what was and were there other were there others that were close? Were you like ah this or this or was it always Bam, no? It was one. I when I decided so after I get this book from this guy Steve Price who by the way is who this book is dedicated to I eventually I, I was googling greatest spy ever most daring spy ever most accomplished spy ever and all roads led to Popov so I'm like okay I got to write about this guy um, and and once I had researched to Popov it wasn't just that he was the inspiration for Bond. He, more than anybody else, uh, deceived the Germans about D-Day uh, because he met the, he was a double agent. And, of course, he met with the Gestapo. He met with the SD. He met with the Abwar. And they interrogated him for, you know, six, seven, eight, nine hours each time that he would meet with them. Well, MI5, which handled double agents, they're giving him all the scoop to give them, you know, maps that are not quite accurate, where, where it says the water's clear, there's really mines there. And things, information that might be good for them. Well, that event had happened yesterday. Uh, so it was all accurate, but it was either irrelevant or old news. Okay. And uh, But anyway, they trusted him. He was their best agent. Um, and then uh, I ordered from the UK National Archives everything about him, everything about Ian Fleming, uh, which, by the way, they keep his files in a safe. Um, really? But I ordered all their stuff. And I, and I got a hold of Winston Churchill's reports. Winston Churchill would get a, he loves spies. He would get a report every month that would summarize what they had, what MI5 and MI6 had just done. So D-Day is, you know, going to happen at the beginning of June. Well, in April, I have the actual report that Churchill read, and the whole top section is about Popov. doesn't mention his name. It goes by his code name, which is Tricycle. But it says Tricycle is continuing to deceive the Germans. He swindled them out of you know, this fortune that we're going to use for our budget. And I'm reading this. I'm like, this is what Churchill saw. Wow. So, uh, so all that stuff is just fascinating for me that I got to see what, you know, things like Churchill read that no one else sees uh, memos that Ian Fleming did uh, because he was J John Godfrey was the Naval uh, was the director of, of Naval intelligence and Fleming was his number two guy. And so he would send Fleming out on assignments. So one, when he's in Portugal, he meets Popov, and he's essentially secretly to track Popov because Popov had swindled the Germans out of more than fifty thousand dollars. And our and our money would be basically like almost a million dollars. Wow! And he had it in cash. So and it, and it technically it belonged to it to, to MI five and MI six. Godfrey, who was in the committee that supervised Popov, said you need to go watch this guy and particularly watch the money. Uh, so, you know, Popov doesn't know this. They had not actually met. And so he Fleming tracks Popov from his hotel in, in Lisbon 
in Estoril, actually, which is just outside of Lisbon. And they go into, he watches, he tracks Popov into a casino, Casino Estoril. Well, guess what happens? That is where Casino Royale comes from. Everything. Amazing. Instead of Casino Royale, the real name was Casino Estoril. Uh, what you saw in the betting scene, if you read the book Casino Royale, which was I mean, Fleming's first, is that scene was created from what Fleming saw. In real life, James Bond was Popoff. Ian Fleming was Mathis, the guy watching, yeah. you know, uh, basically the case officer for Bond and Popoff. And then the villain, Le Chiffre, in the, in, the, in the novel, the guy's real name was Block, which I found out during my research. All that happened. Even, and, and, and Fleming just recreated, even to the size of the bet. I went back and I tracked how much a French franc was worth back then. Even the size of what Pop, because Popov used all that money and pushed it in. Wow. So we went there and went into the casino to the back rat tables and, and, and I recreated the scene. So I actually put the, put the clip on my website of, of what happened during, I'm explaining it at the very place that it happened in 1941. No kidding. I think in the movie, they, don't they change it? Because uh, people don't in America don't really know Baccarat, right? right. They, they, they didn't they change it to like Baccarat. Texas Hold'em or something? Yeah. I don't yeah. know why they it's did a that. Great game. I love it. But yeah, it but Baccarat. I don't know why they did that for the movie. I mean, if you look at the novel, the novel's still Baccarat. Yeah, exactly. That's why I don't know why they did that for the for the movie. That was like the one slip up that didn't really make too much sense. Right. Like I don't know why right. they, it would have been easy to keep it. You know, Baccarat. It wasn't like anything that would have tripped things up. Like you got to change some things up, you know, for doing an adaptation, yeah, yeah. but that was one that you didn't really need to change. It was like, it's, it's a card game. You're right. There. there was no reason because in the bond movies and other movies, he's playing. Yeah, back exactly. Exactly. Maybe yeah. back in the day, maybe in the sixties, people were more familiar. I don't know. Right. Maybe yeah, I think they were. it's possible. I'm not, were. I'm not sure about Texas that. Holden. Yeah. They're did you know, did you know how to play the game before you started doing the, the research or do you know how to, how to play it now? Um, which one? Baccarat. Baccarat. I, I, I didn't know how to play it before, but I had, I wanted to study it to see how it works. Yeah. So I did study it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's very cool. I always want to learn how to play that one just because of the, the, the bond films and, yeah. and books. Um, that's amazing. What, what was the most surprising thing you learned during that, during that research when you started down that path, either about, um, Fleming or Popoff or, uh, yeah, any of it, what was your, what was the most surprising thing that you found out during that research? Uh, the life. And um, I, I, I put a quote in that book. This guy who was a double agent was was everything that you saw in James Bond. He was more. Uh, James Bond speaks three languages. Well, Popoff spoke five. James Bond's very intelligent. Well, Popoff had a doctorate in law that he had gotten in Germany uh, at Freiburg University. James Bond's a, a, a good shot. Popoff had won two pistol shooting contests in Germany, back to back. Uh, so, so all, and, and the women, you know, James Bond has always has these beautiful girlfriends. Popoff made him look like a Boy Scout. This oh, wow. guy who was handsome, who, who had a gravitas, who, who was bold, who was everything that, that Bond was. He had, and, and it's throughout the book, he had girlfriends in every city he went to. So when he was in England, and I know because I, I, I have the diaries, you know, I have the, that are in MI5's files. And because uh, they watched him, too. You know, they wanted to make sure that he wasn't a triple agent. So uh -huh. they watched him, too, and they record. So he's got two or three girlfriends in London, uh, a couple in Lisbon, a couple in Madrid, one in Rio. He traveled <laughs> all around the world as, as a spy during World War II. And he just, he had girlfriends. <laughs> and if, if you look in the files, this was really cool. 
I'm going through all these files um, that were all classified until the mid 80s. And there's there's all these love letters. Well, you know, the British would censor the mail to see if there was any mm-hmm. secret coded things coming from the Germans. And so in his file, you have letter after letter after letter, these love letters from women that are that, <laughs> that MI5 is intercepting. And one's from Nani and one's from Martha and one's from and they're like, oh, Dusko, I can't wait. I, you know, I love you wow. so much. I can't wait till we meet again. So this guy has all these girlfriends. In fact, there was one he got from Switzerland and he couldn't remember who the girl was. Oh, my. <laughs> wow. He's living it up. He was anyway. So back to his life. So he's this he's this international playboy in real life. But he was a double agent. He he worked for both MI5 and MI6, which is straight intelligence when you're abroad. Uh, MI6 loaned him to the FBI. So he essentially becomes an FBI agent. They called him an informant, but really he was an agent. Um, And he would be interrogated when he was in Portugal as I mentioned, by all of the German agencies, the, the intelligence agencies, the Gestapo, the SD, and the Abwar. So he do, is an import-export businessman during the day, and he's a German agent and a British agent and an international playboy. And at night, he goes out to entertain women. And so on both sides, if you were a spy, all of my spies did this, you had to sign an oath of secrecy. You could not say, probably like you did, you could not say anything about the war at all. Not who you were, not what your code name was, nothing. And so you were gagged. So nobody could say anything. And that's why Popoff had warned, one of the great things he did is he had warned the FBI in August of 1941 that the Germans were, or that the Japanese were planning to attack Pearl Harbor. And he knew because he had a German questionnaire that the Germans had given him on behalf of the Japanese to investigate the defenses. It's one of the reasons they sent him to the U.S. And so he gave that to the FBI. I held in my hands the exact document that J. Edgar Hoover held in his hands, which was the MI5 had translated the German to English. So I've got both the German and the English, um, and I'm holding in my hands this this very uh, piece of paper that Hoover held which said the Germans are going to, uh, the Japanese are going to attack Pearl Harbor. Well, Hoover hated spies. He hated especially double agents and he hated playboys. And so he just ignored it. Uh, but the reason that no one hears about Popoff is Popoff can't say anything. He's gagged mm. by the official secrets act. He can't tell anyone, look, I warned these people back in August of 1941 and Hoover keeps it buried his whole life. There were eight investigations of Pearl Harbor. Papa's name never comes out. This questionnaire never comes out. The warning never comes out because Hoover kept it buried. So after everybody's dead, then they start declassifying. So in the mid 80s, which is when, you know, I went back and I looked at, at all these files when I was doing the research. That's when the information started to gradually come out. So wow. um, so that's why I spent time in both sets of archives. The FBI files are at College Park, Maryland, and National Archives, too. Same with the uh, OSS files are all there. The British files are at Q. Uh, and my next, I'm doing another spy. Book number five would be about another OSS agent operating out of Stockholm and, and Germany. And so I had to get all of the archives from the Swedish archives. And and uh, and the trouble was half were in Swedish and half were in German. So I had wow. to get all of them translated. But that's, you know, that's part of my stick. That's part of what I have to do. 
that's incredible. That, how long did that first one take you then um, to do that first book? And, and are you on a, is it every two years or what are you, are you on a, on yeah, some sort of a. Every two years now, the first book was longer because the, I had to do so much research. Popoff had done so many things. So the research took about a year and a, a year and a half to two years just doing the research. Yep. Uh, and I'd met, I, I had connected with his youngest son, uh, was still around in, in, uh, in, in, uh, Dubrovnik. And so I was able to connect with him and ask him questions of things that he might've heard. Like there was a German that I was convinced that Popoff had killed who, who, because he had killed Popoff's best friend. This was a, this was an SD guy. He had killed Popoff's best friend, Johann Jepsen who was Popoff's German case officer, who wasn't a Nazi. Wow. And, and the Avoir generally hated the Nazis. And so he, Popoff knew that Jepson knew that he was a double agent and didn't say anything. And so eventually they, they captured, they kidnapped him actually out of Portugal. And they, uh, and, and, and they knock him out, they drug him, and they put him in a trunk, and they fly him to, to Berlin for uh, interrogation and torture. Anyway, Popoff finds out who... Uh, he believes actually killed him, and um, I wow. won't spoil it. But Popoff in the end says, uh, "No, I, I just beat him. I didn't really kill the guy. No, I think he killed him." And I asked his <laughs> son. I said, "Did your dad ever ever say anything about killing?" Because I was convinced the name that Popoff had said didn't exist. But I checked all of the the the. Uh, I had to go through all of the um, uh, Nuremberg trials to wow. to find this guy's name. And the name that Popoff had used wasn't there. So eventually, eventually I figured out, I found out who the man was. And I think Popoff killed him. And, and I said to his son, do you think your dad killed this man? And he said, well, you know, we asked him at dinner one night and my dad didn't say anything, but he winked at me. Wow. So he, he's observing, he's keeping true to, to, you know, maintaining the Official Secrets Act. But he winks at his son to say, yeah, uh, yeah, I took him out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's wild. All right. Today, I want to talk about Protect.com. That is P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. Started by my buddy Nick Norris from the SEAL teams, who was recently on the podcast. He's all about health and wellness and living that best life. So what we have here, hydration, immunity, energy, rest, liquid packs because we all want to feel our best we dream of waking up with plenty of energy to excel at our work our personal lives and have a great workout every single day but the reality is very few of us do that that's why protect was started and you can grab a convenient pack right here this is energy so this has been boosting me through my latest novel and look at that it's a liquid pack right there you just bam add it to a glass add a little water and you are good to go so hydration Love the hydration and the immunity and the clarity, which I'm going to take as soon as this podcast is over and I get back to writing. So all of that plus the rest. How important is that rest? Right here, take that an hour and a half before bed for some great sleep. And for hydration right here, 30 minutes after you wake up and right before your workout. So swap that daily energy drink for the energy, try that hydration, that immunity, that rest. And they also have products like this, Reef Safe Sunscreen, SPF 50 Protect, right there. And right now, you can get 25% off. Go to Protect.com, that is P-R-O-T-E-K-T, 
dot com slash danger close for 25 percent off go check them out gosh yeah so i'm working on a uh not my first nonfiction work uh with james scott who's a historian and a uh, pulitzer prize finalist and i thought we would be able to do one every year very quickly i found out no Two years. It just doing all that research. We have some even we're doing some Freedom of Information Act requests, but even those won't be back in time. Right. But there's there luckily there's not anything that uh, would change the trajectory of the story, and it's about the 1983 Marine Beirut barracks bombing. Um, right. And uh, so there's a lot of declassified materials about the Reagan White House and what was going on politically at that time. Right. Um, as they're figuring out, do we put the Marines ashore? Do we keep them on amphib ships and you know yep. in the Med? Where do we do? Um, so doing all that research, but very quickly. Uh, I got back in touch with my publisher and said, this is going to be an every two year thing on the nonfiction side of the house, because just doing your due diligence is going to take that long if you're going to do it right. Or if, if, you know, if we're going to do it, do it right. You have Um, to spend a year in research. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm on the first one took three years because there was so much material. Uh, But after that, it's so every two years. And plus, I I know every book is uh, I've got the German stuff covered because I do it every year and I know all the. The yeah. players from Hitler and Gehring and all the way down the Abwar and all the way the Jeez. SC and the Gestapo. So it's it's easier for me and it's faster. Yeah. But it still takes a year. It, uh, yeah. It, it, and that first one, you don't have a deadline yet. I don't know if you did or not, but because uh, on nonfiction side of the house, for those listening, uh, you can sell to an agent or a publisher an idea, an outline, a chapter, um, and then get the, the deal and then go out and do that sort of research. So that You can do that on the nonfiction side. On the fiction side, you have to have a complete manuscript. That thing has to be done. It has to be as good as you can possibly make it before you show it to an agent or a publisher or however you go about doing that. Um, but uh, but you, you, tra- you treated yours like, Fiction, like you did the whole, th- you had it done first, the whole thing before yep. you got it to an agent and a publisher. Yep. Yep. Oh man, that's and that's a lot of research. But now, once you once you have the deal, now you have deadlines. So now, right. <laughs> now but it's not going to take two and a half or three. It's it's two. You have that's deadlines, and you have a publication date, yep. and uh, and you got to hit those marks. Um, yep. But uh, that's fascinating. Um, when, by the way, let me know if you need the guy who is the tank commander I told you about that was thank there. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I have a, a list working of people who have, since I announced it, who have reached out yeah. and said, hey, I know so-and-so. Have you talked to so-and-so? Have you talked to so-and-so? Yeah. And so I'm making a, a list there um, and, uh, and and going through that. But that uh, yeah, luckily it comes out in October of 2024, uh, is fall oh, of 2024. Okay. So there's some time. Yeah, so there's still some okay. there's still some time. Um, they want to head back to uh, Camp Lejeune this October and uh, try oh, to sit down. They have a reunion every year there wow. of uh, survivors of the attack and, oh. and and uh, so go back there and do some first person interviews. Um, yeah, James oh, Scott is running around doing first person interviews right now. Yeah. Um, oh. But uh, yeah, so I'm super excited to, to uh, expand into that because I try to weave as much of that history into my novels as I possibly can. Um, but what what drew you? Jack, I've got to ask you because I asked you this. Remember when we had drinks after yeah. you came last well, year? I asked you when do you sleep <laughs> because you've got so well, many on your books the the you know the the uh tv show uh all the th- other things you're doing the podcast it's, and uh and when you mentioned that drug that they gave that they gave pop up i was like <laughs> i'm taking a note i'm like i need to look into that um because yeah. i might i might need and it and now you've added yet another book now you've got a non-fiction so 
the the six hour sleep that you were getting is what down to four? You probably. It's uh, I pulled a couple all nighters for this last one, and I do not recover from all nighters the way I used to, even just three yeah. years ago. It's uh, it's no, different now. Know. It's different getting up and can yeah. just just moving into that day and and yeah. continuing to crush. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult these days. So I need to get on a better schedule. So now there's a dream. Yeah. <laughs> or that. Yeah, exactly. But now I'll, uh, you know, we're having, you know, there's more agents now cause each agent has a specific thing that they're yeah. focused on, whether it's literary or it's documentary or it's podcast or it's adaptation or it's unscripted or whatever it is. Everybody has their own specific thing and then entertainment yeah. attorneys and all that sort of thing. So now that there's a more of a team that uh, I'm putting together that can kind of handle some of that more strategic level stuff. So I can, uh, really get into the weeds and just, and do my writing, do my research, um, and do all those things that, uh, that need to happen and kind of push the other ones off that I don't need to be doing to the experts, to the, to the, the best in their field. So and um, to add to all that schedule, you have a family. Yep. Got to okay. juggle the family. It's that's, that's crazy. Uh, so it's the, as you know, it's the interruptions that really get you as a, oh, as a writer. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm figuring out, figuring out a better, better schedule here as we move into the rest of the year. And then there's some other things that haven't even been announced yet that, uh, that are on the plate as well that are uh, pretty fun. And um, I'm excited about and uh, working on right now. So it's go, go, go. It's go, go, go. But speaking yeah, of adaptations, you're going to have to write a book about how to manage your time. So you can do <laughs> all of these things. I might, I might do that. Cause I get a lot of uh, questions about it from people, which in turn yeah. takes time. Uh, cause I try to get back to people and as much as I possibly can. Cause I'm so thankful that people have invested their time with me and took a chance on sure. me as a, as an author, a new author. Um, so I try to get back to as many people as I possibly can, but I might, write some of these things down and uh, make a book about it. And then I can point them towards the book uh, instead of redoing everything on a, you know, on text or direct message or or whatever else I'm, I'm trying to do. Because it's hard. I mean, every author that I know only does one thing. They just write there. If you're fiction, you write every year. If you're nonfiction, you write every two, three, four or five years. And that's all they do. They don't do anything else. So the fact that you've added layer after layer, after layer, after layer, it's, it's incredible. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I, you know, growing up reading Clancy, so I, so I saw that too. I saw people who did the nonfiction side, uh, yeah. saw people that did the fiction side and then Clancy comes along and we have these books in the eighties, of course, right. to start with hunt for red October and continue through. And then early nineties, we have this shift over and doing uh, every couple of years of the fiction. And then also yeah, we have a nonfiction side of the house. We have aircraft carrier and I think tank and air wing yeah. and, and all those, yeah. he started to pepper those in because yeah. they were interesting yeah. to him. And I think earlier in the eighties, he did create a gaming company, but it was more like a dungeons and dragons type thing back in the, in the eighties. Uh, but then red storm entertainment turns into those video games, which have crushed over the last <laughs> right. say almost so 30 years, your, maybe almost 20. When you, when you saw that, was that kind of what in your mind generated mm-hmm. this vision? Yep. Yeah, definitely something that inspired it. And other people do it as well. A few people, people do it like uh, Brad Meltzer. Uh, he has the conspiracy series. The Nazi conspiracy just came out. Right. He has uh, the Lincoln conspiracy, the Washington conspiracy. Um, right. And then he has his fiction as well. And he has his children's books. Uh, James Patterson right. has a few different things going on. So, um, so there are examples of it, but it's, you know, always trying to not just copy somebody else, but uh, do it uh, as good as I can possibly so do it many things. and put my, cool. put my spin on it, which is kind of that authenticity side yeah. uh those feelings and emotions behind actually having done some of these things um yeah. that kind of differentiates or anyway just trying to do the best i can you know i was trying to trying to build this out have fun always learning i'm always learning like a sponge like you are uh with your amazing books um but i'm always always learning always trying to to do it better uh tomorrow than i did it today 
Well, there, 20 years from now, there will be writers who say, you know, I studied Jack Carr and what he did and how he built this massive brand, the greatest brand that Marvel's <laughs> had. And so I just studied what Jack did. Oh, well, <laughs> thank you. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Well, hence the podcast, you know, because authors that uh, that we grew up with reading in the uh, yeah. in the 80s, 90s, you know, they couldn't have a podcast. They couldn't reach right. an audience like that. If right. they wanted to, to thank an, uh, a reader, they could do it maybe at a book signing. But some of those guys got even too big for that. I think Grisham, after all his mo- series of movies came out by the late 90s, I forget exactly when he stopped doing book tours and he, he's done some more recent um, but there was just there were just too many people, um, right. and so he didn't do book tours for a for a long time. Uh, so yeah. if he was going to say thank you to someone during those times, it would be like let's say CBS this morning or a, you know wherever yeah. whatever interview he was doing, he could say, like turn to the camera and say hey thank you or talk to the interviewer and say hey I just want to say thank you to all the people who have read the novels and watched the movies. Um, yeah. uh, but today you can have a you can have a podcast and we can talk about that here or I can post something about it on on social media and thank everybody that way or uh, there's just more ways to yeah. to to reach and thank that audience. Um, so I'm always trying to, to do that because I think about that sort of thing every day. I would feel very well, fortunate. One of my friends, he was a fraternity brother of mine, Michael Connolly. Oh, um, did you tell me that before? Yeah, we, we were fraternity brothers in college. He was three years ahead of me. We both lived no in the house, massive house at the University of Florida. Um, but I remember him telling me, I was talking to him at one of the festivals he was at, and he said, you know, in the old days, this was how we did it. You know, you had to sell your books by going festival to festival to festival. There's no social media. There's no computers. Wow. So you have to go to these festivals. And Michael Connolly built his brand uh, not only by working hard, but by going to all these festivals. Yeah, I mean, you got to put in the put in the time um, yeah. and put in uh, put on the boots and get out there. And uh, and so you still do that. But now there's other things you can do too. Uh, so you just kind of pile it on top yeah. and one complements the other and uh, yeah. got to figure out how if you're going to spend that time, how to maximize that time, work in those yeah. efficiencies. Um, and it's uh, just because your time also needs to be spent creating the best product possible because right. at its base, right. the book has to be the best that it can possibly be or whatever people are doing who's listening, that widget, whatever it might be, has to be the yeah. best that it can possibly be. And after that, if you want to keep making those widgets because you love it, well, people yeah. have to know about it. Uh, and so how do you do that? Well, you get out there and you hit the bricks and you're at those festivals, you're at those uh, independent bookstores, uh, which helps them as well. Uh, and then right. you're at those festivals and you're on social media and you're on a podcast and, 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 um, but just trying to do it in a way that's, uh, for me anyway, that's thoughtful and respectful and, uh, yeah. adds value. To, to people's lives. So hopefully people that are listening to this that are uh, aspiring authors or writers and what they want to get published, uh, you know, maybe they'll take a couple, a couple of things from, from this conversation. But I forget if you told me that Michael Connolly was a fraternity brother of yours. I just saw an email this morning. We're supposed to be on a panel together at Thriller Fest. Uh, oh, I think great. June, yeah. I want to say third, oh. which is a Saturday, I think. Oh, um, so we're doing about uh, book to, to film or TV adaptations. We'll be on a, a panel for that at, at you know, things can always change, but I, I saw that this morning. Um, and I'll be there uh, on that Saturday. Brad Thor is going to interview me, um, oh, uh, during the day. Yeah. So it's a spot like the spotlight guest, I think they call it or something, something like great. that. But, great. uh, but yeah, Thriller Fest is amazing. Cause you meet so many people, you can have that interaction with those agents. And, uh, you know, if it's, it's, uh, the, the area that you want to get into, it makes sense to go to Thriller Fest go to BoucherCon uh, and start kind of kind of learning who the players are and uh, picking up little tips here and there and just uh, mm-hmm. becoming uh, you know, the best you can possibly be in that field just little by little. Um, so, yeah. By the way, did you look at what what Mike did with um, his series, Bosch? I mean, because that, that came out before the Terminal List yep. series. Oh, yeah. So I was watching. Did you, did you 
watch that and say this is how you should do it uh, because Mike Mike's one of the writers on that and I think he's in charge of the writing room um uh, and and went out to LA I mean he spends a good part of the year out in LA just to do that yeah so I mean I also realized you know that things are going to be different because by that when my novel got uh, optioned I had sold zero books so it's uh, the January before it comes out. Uh, okay. When Michael Connolly's gets, he has right. sold, right. I don't know how many uh, books, um, but it's, uh, you know, yeah, it's over 20 years worth of doing this with uh, the Bosch series and then some other yeah. ones along the way as well. He's done so much. And I read yeah. his Black Echo when it first came out back in the early 90s. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was early oh, in. I was a, a reader my, my whole life. So I was early oh, in. Um, so I did take note, but I also took note that, oh, he is negotiating from a position of strength because he has created this universe. Mine is a promise of what is to come. And uh, most people go, oh, yeah, sure, kid. You know, like uh, kind of like me telling me you want to be a Navy SEAL. Uh, they look at you like, OK, yeah, do you know the odds of that? OK, well, you know, oh, you're going to get a not you're writing a book. Oh, OK, oh, you're getting yeah. it published. Oh, all right. Still. Um, so so it's not it's so I realized I was uh, in a different position. Um, but now that I've been an executive producer on it and. And I was involved throughout the whole process. Um, and then I you know, showed that I could add value. Uh, so now I'm a writer on this next spinoff and on the next series that we're doing. And so you just kind of got to prove yourself a little more um, if you don't have well, if, I, if you sold I'll if you sold zero I'll books at the time of the deal. <laughs> yeah, I'll be asking you about that later, because my first within the lion's mouth, it was uh, essentially option for a TV series. Nice. I was going to ask and you about we, that. Well, well, that's history because we had it. Uh, we had a director, we had uh, two screenwriters, and we had a producer. Mm. And then they sent me the treatment, and the treatment just destroyed the character, just completely oh, no. character. And um, and and so I, yeah, they had made him kind of a sexist and all these other things. And I told them, I said, look, I, I'm I'm not gonna, you can't do that to the character. This is a true story. Right. Um, and I understand you got to change dialogue because it's a it's a TV show or whatever. But I said, I am still friends with the family. His wife is still alive and his kids are still alive. And I talked to them and I'm not going to do that to their family. Wow. And had, so I pulled the plug. No kidding. Pulled, how did you have the how did you have that sort of, um, I guess, power to be able to do that? Because once I signed. They could do anything yeah. they want with it. I, I was... well, we had never signed anything. This oh, okay. was all with, with the management company, and they said, "We'll, we'll, you're, you're our guy. We'll line up everything." And so they brought in the producer and the writers and the director oh, wow. and all that. And then they, uh, but they didn't commit me to to contract yet. So oh, uh, once I saw the treatment, I'm like, I'm not doing this. Oh wow, that is and interesting. I'm surprised it hasn't continued because this is a great series. To, uh, you know, not not a series series but well, they're a great series of books uh all of my books have been i've been contacted by hollywood the yeah. code name we had three offers for movies but they weren't quite right i mean it wasn't right it didn't feel like this is the right company they they they, they didn't yeah. have a history of doing really uh large movies uh, or whatever the reason was so my agent and i decided well we'll just wait okay same with prince by we we had a, we had two two uh inquiries and just one thing leads to another and you can never get it across the finish line so yeah, it's I mean, so amazing that yours did you know with chris pratt right you know from the get-go what a blessing that is yeah no i mean i got the exact star and the exact director yeah. uh antoine fuqua um, so i got exactly what i wanted um but there's a lot of trust there 
I mean, you yeah. have to trust, if, especially if Absolutely. you're just stepping into that world and you don't have, you have you've sold zero books and you don't have a yeah. history in screenwriting yeah. or there, no. no social media presence or exactly. nothing at that point. Right. Um, and so it's it's a lot of trust handing that over. But they were so fantastic because usually then they get rid of the author right away and they just do right. whatever they, right. they want. Right. Um, but for me, they wanted to bring me in because it was Chris and Antoine and then they got this Absolutely. amazing showrunner, David DiGilio. Yes. And, That's uh, what they we, said to yeah. Exact same thing. Yeah, we're gonna. Do, we want to do this series, but you have to be involved. Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. Because usually, you know, they don't want the author saying you ruined my vision. They don't want you on set after you've like signed something just because you're excited, and then you're on set. Then you're seeing what they're doing to it, and you're like, you're ruining this vision. Yeah. And it becomes a yeah. becomes a thing. Um, so well, I, I just got what, very lucky. Because you know what team. John Lacare said about having one of your books turned into a film. What did he say? It's like having one of your oxen turned into bullion. Oh wow! <laughs> okay, destroy it. Yeah, I, I mean it's they can, and yeah. uh, unless you've worked your way, like I think Daniel Silva, so he's you know, yeah. over twenty books right now. He it is not none of his stuff has been made into a series or a, or a film, even though it would be fantastic, obviously. Um, but he has created this whole universe with Gabriel Alon, and he had three books before that outside that universe, but with Gabriel Alon character. Uh, so he's probably negotiating from a position of strength. Like part yeah. of his deal will probably be that he is involved and that he does give his thumbs up it works now i would get no i don't know if there's anything that works now but i would say i would guess that once you have that it's kind of like michael connelly uh once you have those universes built then you can kind of say hey i want to be involved instead of them saying instead of them saying yeah we want to take your stuff but we're going to do kind of what we want with it because we're the experts over here um so i so yeah, but for me, I just got lucky because they could do whatever they wanted with it, right. but they brought me in and I learned so much over the last couple of years and got to contribute. Right. And it was just an amazing, amazing team of people. So I feel extremely fortunate that they brought me in, wanted me to be involved and yeah. uh, that I learned so much and was able to contribute. And now we get to go make this uh, spinoff in our second season. And it's, uh, you know, you never really know until it's up there on the screen, right. It, right. <laughs> but you know, we're moving down, moving down that path. So it's, uh, it's yeah. fun. I just love learning new things. Uh, and it, I'm having a, having a blast, but yeah, all of your books would be such great adaptations. I mean, they, they, so I'm, I'm sure it will happen at some point. You never know. Someone listens to this podcast is like, Oh wait, what? Um, or, uh, someone asked me, Hey, do you know anybody who has something in this genre? We're looking for something here. And I can say, yes, absolutely. here you go. Have you read I mean- this? I need somebody to hand a book to, to, to my Chris Pratt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's helpful. It does help to have a, have a champion for sure. Um, looking around, uh, uh, just looking at other projects to have somebody that can champion that. Um, and, and still, even then you never, you never really, never really know, but, um, luckily you'll it, drop a note to Steven Spielberg, you know, that'd be, that'd be great. I'll, <laughs> <laughs> next time, next time we're hanging out a little, a little more. Man, that is so wild. Um, and then, so from the first book, what led you to the second one? What, how did you make that, uh, choose that? Cause now you have one, you have one in the tank. Yeah. Um, you've, you've got a, more of a process down probably. And now you yeah. have to decide, okay, where am I going to go next? And even in fiction, I have to decide, okay, where's right. this character going next? Right. And sometimes right. you can write yourself, uh, kind of into that by what happened in the previous book and other times you kind of, I can leave it like, okay, now things have opened up a little more and I have a lot more choices about where to go with this character just because of how I ended the last one um, or what's happened to this character over the preceding books. Um, so how did you make the decision for the, for the second book? For, for all of them, it's the same. When I'm doing research for one, I always find someone on the, on, in the research of stuff yeah. that had done yeah. something else. And so when I'm researching, yep. 
in the lion's mouth, you know, I found out about the SOE, the special operations executive, which were commandos essentially. Um, and then, and then once I'm looking at reference material for that, I'll read about spies or, or, or people that have done these things. And I'm like, okay, I got to keep this guy in mind for the next book. And so when I'm, nice. when I'm doing Popoff's book, I, I, I find the SOE. When I'm doing the SOE book, I find the OSS and people that mm-hmm. spies that were involved in the OSS. William Casey, by the way, was in the yep. OSS. Yep. On the sure Reagan was. CIA director. So anyway, the research leads me to someone else. And that's why I was saying after the Prince's Spy, when I was looking um, and came up with this this character, yeah. was because she this person that I'd found in my research had been at Ravensbrook at the same time that Odette was there. Amazing. So it's it's always the research that leads you to find these other people. Yeah, I find that as well. As I'm going along, I have another file on my computer where as I'm doing some research or, or, or just writing, I'm like, oh, this would be a good, now here's an option for the next one. So I have a little file with those. So I'm not starting from scratch at the end, but I have a good idea of where I want to go, but then I can take a breath and look at that and then maybe add to it, subtract from it, uh, morph it, think it through a little more, but at least I have something to work with. I'm not, I don't, finish that last chapter, send it off to Simon and Schuster and then say, Oh no, what am I doing next? I have a starting point, (laughs) a little bit of a a foundation has been, uh, has been built, uh, in, in some way, shape or form from the preceding books and the ideas for the next multiple ideas for the next one. So, um, so I do like that. I always have a hurdle every time because for, if you're going to write nonfiction first, everything has to be true. hundred percent. All the dialogue is verbatim from primary sources, but (laughs) Most spies, most people didn't do 50 great things. They did one, you know, Mm -hmm. one cool thing. So when I find a name, a spy or a character, and I start digging and start researching, I found out that they only did one thing or maybe two. Well, that's not enough because I want my books to be thrillers, which means like yours, you have to have action all the time. You have to have dead bodies, guns, (laughs) knives, mystery, intrigue. Uh, you know, Marsak and Codename Lease uh, has all these documents with people's names on a train. He wakes up and the, and it's gone. I mean, that really happened. So mm-hmm. I have to find somebody that had all, you know, 20, 30 different thing, cool things that happened so that I can use them as cliffhangers. Yeah, and, right. And make it read like a thriller. Right. No, you do that so well. Um, and so let's talk about Watchmaker's Daughter because that's the one that just uh, just came out and I got to read it first and I it was it's incredible. And I didn't know this story at all. Um, some of the other, you know, the other ones you've like heard things about this person or that person or, but I did not know this story and I'm so glad that you wrote it because everybody should know this story. Um, can you take us through it? Sure. So the watchmaker's daughter and the subtitles, the, uh, the story of world war II heroine, Corey Ten Boom. Corey was in a fam- a Dutch family. They live in Harlem, which is uh, Harlem, Holland, which is just about 10 miles east of Amsterdam. And they were just a normal family, but v- they were devout Christians. They had throughout through her grandfathers and great grandfather. They, they had always loved Jews and had prayed for Jerusalem. So then when World War II breaks out, now they're watchmakers. Her dad basically was the best watchmaker in the world in his day, certainly the best in the Netherlands. He trained her, he trained Corey, and then he sent her to Switzerland to learn how to become a watchmaker. So she becomes the first female licensed watchmaker uh, in the Netherlands. So they had uh, a lot of vendors from in Germany. 
Um, and so eventually when World War II, before World War II breaks out, there strange things are happening. Like their Jewish contacts in Germany were no longer responding. Mm. And and the, the mail was coming back address unknown. You know, bizarre things like that. And then once the war starts and, and the Nazis take control of the Netherlands, then their Dutch some of the, the Dutch Jews in their neighborhood disappear. You know, there there was another another uh, uh, guy. I guess he was a watchmaker too, but a, a Jewish one down the street, and his his shop is shuttered. And they're like, "What happened? What happened to him?" And so, just one by one, well, the Gestapo snatching him up, and so they realize we're going to have to help here. We we want to help. It's it's our. And if you remember Bonhoeffer, in fact. The epigram, you know, which is when you have a, a long quote at the beginning of the book, the epigram is a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote. I'm sure you're familiar with Bonhoeffer, um, who, who was a German theologian and pastor and and just said, look, I, I can't just sit idle. He had a cushy job in the United States teaching. He's like, I have to go back. My country is just being destroyed by this madman and I have to help. So he's part of the conspiracy to get rid of Hitler. And, of course, he's caught and all that. Anyway, he wrote this wonderful, this is in uh, one of the books I have back here. It's called Letters and Papers from Prison. It was all the letters. The guards loved him because they were going to him for marital advice. They knew he was a pastor. <laughs> they loved him. So they would sneak out his letters. So that's how we have them. But um, anyway, so Bonhoeffer had, had said first, really before anybody, it's not enough just to sit by and say, oh, wow, that's really bad that the Nazis are doing this. That's really bad that they're killing Jews. You have to get involved. And um, in the Netherlands, there were two groups. Not only were they snatching up Jews, they were also snatching up what were what were called Dutch divers. And those are Dutch boys between about 16 and 35, because the German factory workers, the men, had all joined the military. So they're gone mm -hmm. and they need men to run the factories. So they would just start snatching up Jewish boys and shipping them on a train, just like they would do to Jews. So instead of sending them to Auschwitz, they would send them to these German factories, normally never to be seen again. In mm. fact, one of Corey's nephews was suffered this and was never seen again. So they would be shipped off. So both had to hide. The uh, the Jews and these the Dutch boys had to hide. And so Corey's family says we're we're going to start hiding these people and so they uh the, the first permanent person they bring in was a dutch boy a university student named hans poley and he said we need a hiding place we need a place because there were jews now in the house and so he cut a hole in the attic and and said we we need to get people up there to hide what well, took too long to get everybody up there they would time it now it took too long so then corey said well look i'll i'll talk to somebody that might know someone they bring in an architect he builds this great hiding place, this false wall uh, that they had bricked in uh, that the, the, the Gestapo would never find. And so they used that. It could fit eight people in there. Uh, and it was really scary. There were raids all the time, morning, night. A uh, window washer shows up one day on the second floor. Well, they don't, there's no ledge. How did he get up there? What's he looking at? What's he, why is he waving to us? And they have to pretend Okay, one of the Jews, a uh, guy named Yusi, said, all right, we'll sing happy birthday. Okay, here, everybody sing, just be normal. That, that kind of stuff happened every day and every night. So they're under constant turmoil, constant pressure. Uh, but her family said, we're going to suffer like they did. If, you know, if we get caught, so be it. But we're going to help. We're going to help them. Uh, and they did. 
Wow. I mean, it's an incredible story and I hope everybody checks it out. It's so inspiring. Um, and, uh, man, and thank you for using my quote on there. Hey everyone, Jack Carr here. The latest Ironclad original change agents with Andy Stump is now available wherever you get your podcasts. Watch the premiere episode only on the Ironclad YouTube channel at this is Ironclad. In this episode, Andy sits down with Glenn Devitt of the Sentinel Foundation to discuss what's happening on the front lines of human trafficking and child exploitation. You don't want to miss these powerful conversations. Every Monday, only on the Ironclad Network. Hey, are you still practicing law? When did you stop practicing no, law? When no, did you I had to stop? I mean, this is yeah. you know, this is a full time gig. Yeah. Did you so, did you still continue to practice law throughout the first book publication, or when did you stop? Little, yeah, there was a little transition. There was a little window. Um, where I had to, I had an office. I mean, an office had a secretary and, you know, I have lease. So I have to get rid of all that, which you can't do overnight. So I was doing both for clients, while, maybe clients, perhaps. Clients, you got to get rid of clients. <laughs> what were you doing? What kind of law were you practicing? I was doing what you did. I was burning the candle at both ends. <laughs> what kind of law uh, did you practice? Uh, corporate. Yeah, I did corporate securities and then towards the end of my career, a little bit of real estate. Hmm. But I had to wean everything down and yeah. that took some time. But it also gave me a little bit because, you know, when you have your first book, you you get no income so <laughs> up front. So I had to keep a little income coming in from the law. So it was a transition. Okay. And it was brutal. Yeah. It was a brutal transition. Oh, man. But now full time writing right now. Man, I'm hoping that yeah. I'm hoping that uh, some of these get uh, made into a series or a film because yeah, uh, they really lend themselves to that. And I think they'd be fantastic. And it gets more people reading, reading your books, which, uh, is kind of, which is you know, kind of the goal. Actually, it's, <laughs> it can be a good yeah, commercial absolutely. for the books. Uh, that's yeah. for sure. Amazing. Yeah. I have to find my Chris Pratt. There you go. There you go. I'll, I'll be looking, I'll be looking for you. And, uh, and as you're, as you're writing this next one, how far are you into it then out of this two year process? Done all the research. This is uh, yeah. OSS by operating in, uh, out of Stockholm. He was a double agent essentially. Went to Germany. He's the only spy that actually operated in Germany. He went all over because he's finding out where he was an oil executive and he's going to find out where all of the German um, refineries were. Because we're going to, he's saying, you guys got a bomb. It's his idea. Wow. He said, I'm going to go there and I'm going to find every single one. I'm going to tell his OSS case officer, who would then tell the British and the Americans, uh, where all these refineries are. So why, why is the Luftwaffe not there at uh, D Day? They had no fuel. Why don't they have any fuel? Because we bombed all of the all the refineries. There are 88 of them in Germany, all scattered all throughout the country. Uh, Battle of the Bulls. Why, why are you know most of their Panzers not there and their Tigers? They're not there. Why? They have no fuel. Why don't they have fuel? Because we bombed all the refineries. How do we know where they were? Because of this one guy. Wow. This guy who put his life on the line, traveled all through. I mean, he he was meeting with Himmler. He was meeting with Goering. He was meeting wow. with their uh, old executives. I mean, it was Jeez. scary. In fact, one of his, he, he, he got a counterpart, a, a woman, um, and they were onto her and they executed her in front of him. Wow. And so I'll spare yeah. the details. I want to find out. Uh, yeah, we won't ruin it for everybody to find out how he how he makes yeah. it out, out of that. Jeez. Yeah. Um, I, I, we'll ask this, though. Uh, how is he getting his info back to uh, the UK or the Americans or however he well, was doing he, that? He lived in Switzerland. He, he was a Swiss American. I mean, he lived in um, Stockholm. And so he would go to Germany for two or three weeks at a time, come back, and he would tell his mm. OSS case officer. 
and then they would pass the word to the British and Americans. And then three weeks later, he would go back to Germany for another round because he kept telling the Germans, I have to I have to analyze to see what we need to reproduce this oil, uh, particularly even after it was bombed. In fact, in the memoir that uh, Albert Speer does, Speer says it was uncanny. Every time we had a factory repaired, an oil refinery repaired, literally the day would be back up, the Allies would come and bomb it again. Wow. Well, the reason was because my guy was telling them he was visiting all these. Himmler personally gave him a pass to visit every refinery throughout Germany. And so wow. he's got an SS escort. He's got the SS flags oh on his car. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. So they take him to all the refineries. And he tells he tells his OSS counterpart, his his case officer, who tells the British and the Americans, okay, this this refinery here, it's going to be up in three weeks. You Jeez. need to get it in three weeks. This one's going to be up tomorrow. We need to get it tomorrow. And so he told them. So Albert Speer, who you know is Hitler's armaments minister, can't figure out how do the Allies know they're bombing the day we get this thing repaired. Wow, it's, it was crazy. Well, it was because of this guy. That is amazing. I wonder if he. Uh... Yes, our, our uh, bombing tactics and uh, some of the technology improved over the course of the war. I wonder if he was ever like, oh, they missed again. You know, yeah. these you guys. Know, I mean, like, you know, when you're covering a certain topic, you have to become an expert on it. So I had to become an expert on the bombing aspect. Yeah. So I bought all of these books, you know, from Bomber Command about the Luftwaffe. Um, and there was a big difference between the, the Americans said, look, we we're just going to bomb military targets. Well, the British wanted to bomb uh, residential areas. And the, so there was a big fight between the allies. And so they eventually said, okay, you do your thing and we'll do ours. So we kept bombing the military targets and they kept bombing uh, industrial uh, residential areas like wow. Hamburg and, and so forth. So uh, Dresden. So anyway, I had to become an expert on, on how they bombed and yeah. what happened. So, that's uh that's essentially what happened amazing amazing and when is that one coming out that one will be in let's see you know the two-year cycle that one will be almost two years uh, 2024 oh wait 2025 probably probably march 2025 got it got it amazing amazing awesome Awesome. Man, By the way, I'm following you to the Reagan Library on April 12th. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. It is so much fun. It is, uh, they do such a good job there. Um, and the, I mean, the crowd was incredible. They have it down to a science because they have so many, you know, high profile people come through. So it's like, you know, security, there's no messing around. There's no waiting. It's like, it's, oh, it's so professional. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so professional. As soon as you step out of that vehicle, like they've got it, you know, they've, they've done this before. It's, yeah, uh, great. but it's, it's great. It's, it's so fantastic. So enjoy, enjoy your time there. I know they're, they'll enjoy you and tell them I said, hi, I think it's the same, I the will. same crew. I, uh, I need to get back out there with my family because it was so it was book tour, so it was so crazy. I think I saw you the next day or two days, three days after that. Yeah, I have yeah. some, something along. I, I was tired. Oh my gosh, that was a wild did book. Tour? Did you have time to tour the facility? Barely. I mean, it was just a quick one, and it was at okay. night. So by the time time I finished signing, it was really really late. So um, yeah, so I didn't really get to see too much, but I got to see there's a stealth fighter outside on this. Uh, it's really cool. So you can see, I saw that, but I didn't have a chance to really go through the museum. So I want to go back there with my family. Inside of the Air Force One, there. I think you can, yeah, but I didn't get to. I was right into the. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. If you have time to do it, for sure do that. I want to bring my family back and take them through, take the whole day. Um, so we'll be doing that at some point here. But uh, it's a, anybody who hasn't visited the Reagan Library should definitely do that, yeah. especially if you're a child of the 80s. Um, right. it's, uh, it'll mean a lot. It'll mean a lot to you. But bring, you know, if you're a child of the 80s and have kids, you know, bring them too. get them off those devices. And, uh, you know, yeah, then you have a, a common connection point to some of our, our, our memories yeah. growing up, which is uh, which yeah. is really cool. But, uh, oh, man, thank you so much for spending time today. I was looking really looking forward to this well, because Jack, I was so I was so honored that you would send this to me early and uh, and let me blurb it. So that thank was you. very thank cool. Thank you so much for blurbing it. And again, it was the number, our number, our best blurb. It, so I was proud of that blurb. I was proud. <laughs> how you how you had had picked up on on uh, out of darkness comes light, which is how I end the the author's note at the end of the book. That's crazy. Yeah. Come across that on your own. I mean, yep. that, that, that idea is incredible. I came up with that early, really early. Like, cause I was, you know, yeah. not even a quarter of the way through. I think I jotted that down as to, to be in, um, to yeah. be in the blurb. Um, Post Tenebras Lux out of darkness comes light. That's how I ended the book. It's so great minds think alike, I guess. There we go. I'll take it. I'll take it. Awesome. Awesome. Everybody that wants to find your books, they're available everywhere. Books are sold, uh, your website and social stuff. That'll all be in the show notes here. And hopefully I'll be seeing you at, uh, are you going to go to Thriller Fest this year? I don't have it on the schedule, but uh, I'm trying to think where we would, uh, at the next book fest, I'm trying to think where we I might. I think BoucherCon is in San Diego uh, in might, August. I'm planning on it, it, depending on the filming schedule. So I'm not oh. positive. I might be on a set somewhere. Um, so, and it's not anywhere close to. to that. Yeah. I've not been to that one yet, but I've, oh, it's I've great. It. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. It's so much fun. Uh, so if I can possibly make it, I will make it, um, but not sure yet. August is well, a little hey, up in the air. You're, you're, uh, and the blood comes out. Uh, the blood only, is, only the dead. Only the dead is May 16th. May 16th. Okay. Are you going to come through Orlando again? Uh, I don't think I am going through Orlando. This I'm trying to think back to the to yeah. uh, the schedule that uh, the tentative schedule. I don't think it's confirmed right. yet, but I don't think it's as a Florida stop this time. But oh, uh, but I'm not positive. I try to switch it up a little bit. Keep a couple in yeah. there that people can kind of count on, and then right. and then do some new ones uh, every yeah. time as well. Kind of kind of mix it up. That's the that's the idea anyway. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so yeah, it's got to kick off here pretty soon. I'll come back from that, uh, and then be home for a little bit, and then off to uh, to New York for Thriller Fest, and uh, then go go go. It's always go go go. go. In July. It is. It was in July for those years that uh, uh, 2018, yeah. 2019. Now it's in late May, early June. So I'll be there. Oh, um, I'll take the red eye out on the, the second and get there the morning of the third. So oh, I'll be there for really? all Saturday. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize when I said yes to it two years ago that my daughter was graduating from high school on oh. the Friday. And then I oh. realized that not long ago. And I was like, oh, my goodness, uh, I committed to this. And I had my daughter's high school graduation so oh. I'll, I'll take the red eye out that that night so but that's how i did the last one too i flew in from uh i was in uh africa with my family and we flew in at the last second i went right from the airport directly to uh thriller fest and it was you know 10 a.m 9 a.m whatever it was when i when i got to thriller fest got to the hotel and it was bam go so that was uh that was fun uh what's that You've been on the red eye. Uh, I don't even remember what time we left Africa, but it's a long flight, obviously. Yeah. Um, so got some, you know, intermittent sleep on the flight, and by the time we landed, it was, uh, it was, yeah, time to, time to go. <laughs> <laughs> but I was still. That was a couple of years ago. I was still could pull it off then. Right now, yeah. man, 
It's harder. Yeah. Well, I heard you there. I mean, I pulled my share of all-nighters in, in undergrad and law school, but uh, those days, it's harder. It's harder now. Definitely harder. Oh, man. But I feel very fortunate. Very fortunate. I'll, I'll, I'll take a few, uh, a few all-nighters every, every year uh, to continue doing what I love, uh, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, man. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for, for writing these books and keeping this history alive. As you know, I think studying history and getting in those pages and having some sort of a touch point uh, with history is so important, especially for this next generation as they come of age and they step into those voting booths and make these decisions for the next, in turn, the next generation. Um, But uh, having a foundation that's built on this history is so important. So thank you for, for, uh, for capturing these events and these people for future generations. Uh, I certainly appreciate it. And, uh, and my wife loved the book too. As soon as I finished it, I gave it to her and she read it and she loved it. So um, yeah. Yeah. So as soon as I was finished, I mean, she she essentially took it from me. um, And uh, yeah, so, so that was, uh, that was wonderful. So thank you for, uh, thank you for writing these. Well, I appreciate that, Jack. And thank you for having me on. Thank you for your wonderful blurb and for not only reading it, but giving it to your wife to read. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, I appreciate that. All right. All right. Well, cool. Hopefully I'll see you either in New York or in San Diego for BoucherCon. If not, I'm yeah. sure we'll, uh, we'll be in touch, uh, in between and I'll be talking to you that's soon. Good. Sounds good. All Jack, right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Navy Federal Credit Union. Those dreaded finances. Managing your money can be hard. They're competing goals, growing savings, paying debt, managing every day and unexpected expenses, plus a little having fun. Navy Federal Credit Union takes the legwork out of saving and investing with a variety of choices. Want to supersize your savings earnings? They're offering some of their highest rates in 10 years. And whether you choose savings or investments, you can make it easier by automating. Plus, their website has articles, tips, and tools that make complicated subjects easier to understand. I've been a member since 1996, my first year in the Navy. For those watching, you can see my Navy Federal Credit Union cue card right there. And they have been awesome to me and my family over all these years. So check out Navy Federal's supercharged rates at navyfederal.org slash save and invest. Saving products insured by NCUA. Investment options are available through Navy Federal Investment Services and are not insured by NCUA. Check them out, navyfederal.org. This is Jack Card. I want to talk about the Magpul DACA grid organizer. You can see it right here in this Pelican case. And if you're checking out the rifles, you might recognize them from my novels right here. This is a Galil from my last novel, In the Blood. And down here is an AK clone. It's a clone of a Tabuk Iraqi AK built by Jim Fuller of Fuller Phoenix. And James Reese uses that in the final chapters of The Devil's Hand. All right. The Magpul DACA grid organizer, specifically designed to fit two of Pelican's most popular hard gun cases, with more fitments coming soon. Magpul's DACA grid organizer is a simple drop-in storage system that allows for endless customization. The EPP grid base was designed to fit perfectly in each Pelican case and comes with a set of grid blocks that can be organized to brace and secure rifles, magazines, optics, accessories, and other gear. Right there. The lightweight EPP blocks provide advanced protection and eliminate shifting of gear during transport. The overall result is better impact resistance and stronger protection for your gear than you'll get from other foam 
options. Offering numerous advantages over traditional foam or expensive laser-cut inserts, the DACA Grid Organizer provides intuitive modular organization at your fingertips. The system can be completely reconfigured without tools or additional cutting. With quick and easy adjustments, the DACA blocks, you can maximize the case's storage capacity and capability each time it's used. The grid's EPP construction provides resistance to chemical intrusion and damage, and cleanup of any dirt or liquids is easy with a damp cloth. Simple to configure, the DACA grid organizer lets you use every inch of the case to store and secure your gear the way you want. Use code DANGERCLOSE at magpul.com, and that's M-A-G-P-U-L.com, to receive $10 off your order of $100 or more. Offer valid only at magpul.com. Enter code in your cart and look for the apply discount code link in checkout. Cannot be combined with other offers. Once again, use code DANGERCLOSE, D-A-N-G-E-R-C-L-O-S-E, at magpul.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Grab a can of Black Rifle Coffee's ready-to-drink, the perfect balance of quality and convenience. If you want a Spartan-level caffeine kick, try Ready to Drink 300, available in salted caramel, vanilla bomb, and more. Made with an electrifying blend of MCT oil and amino acids, Ready to Drink 300 packs a caffeine punch that'll supercharge your day. Ready to Drink is perfect if you need your coffee quick, and shopping with Black Rifle Coffee helps give back to the veterans and first responders who serve our nation. You can stock up on cans at blackriflecoffee.com or grab an ice-cold can at a convenience store near you. You can stock up at blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code DANGERCLOSE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash DangerClose for 20% off. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, thank you to Chris Shane for sending this amazing drawing. Absolutely love it. You can find his work at Chris-S-C-H-A-I-N.com. You can also follow him on Instagram, Chris.Shane, S-C-H-A-I-N dot art. And this thing is just awesome right there. He put me in the upper right-hand corner. Chris Pratt as James Reese in The Terminal List. Constance Wu up there. Riley Keough. Taylor Kitsch. J.D. Pardo. Tyner Rushing. And this guy right here, that's Jared Shaw. And he played Boozer in the series. And he's the whole reason that Chris Pratt found the book and the whole reason that the series exists. We were in the SEAL teams together. And uh, we tell the whole story on the Terminal List podcast in episode one. So you can go to the Terminal List podcast on my website, officialjackcar.com. Click on the podcast if you want to find out more or go to YouTube and check it out there as well. So uh, thank you to Jared for making all this happen. And uh, thank you to Chris Shane for this drawing. Awesome. What else? So Joe Bork, so he sent me this arrow right there. That's the one that uh, he created based on um, Savage Sun. And it's, it's absolutely incredible. Use tar up here. That's a deer bone right there at the end. It's just, just amazing. But he sent me this as well. And he is trackerjoe08 on Instagram. And this is a survival knife or part of a survival kit from World War II. And that is just 
amazing right there. Um, so Joe, thank you so much for thinking of me. And he sent these pictures too. So uh, Army Air Forces is, uh, is written on this photo here and goes through the survival kit. There's the knife right there. There's somebody right there in that old picture going through it. And here's a picture of somebody actually wearing the vest that has the knife in it. So, uh, so very cool. Um, man, Joe, thank you so much. This is amazing. Piece of history right there. All right. What else do we have? Protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. Started by my buddy, Nick Norris. He's been on the podcast before. Nick and I were in the SEAL teams together. This one right here is Clarity, Brain Function Performance Mushroom Blend. And I'm going to be taking this this afternoon as I get back into writing. So uh, check them out and everything that they have going on. And right here, only the dead. So this is a galley copy. So essentially, it's still a rough draft. And these copies go out to reviewers ahead of time so that when the book comes out on May 16th, they've already read it. And if you're doing an interview, you can talk to them about it, or they can post a review in a newspaper or magazine or online, or whatever it might be. So this is a thick one. See that this is the longest to date. Also, the most brutal to date. And uh, this comes out May 16th in hardcover, audio and ebook available for pre-order right now. So that is only the dead. And right here, so this is the P365. If you followed me for a while, you know that I just love this pistol. And this one right here is from True Precision. So true-precision.com. Got the threaded barrel on there, red dot optic, some irons there that you can use through the optic and a light. So uh, this thing, love that 365. And my little rule with lights is if I'm carrying a pistol that has a light on it, then I also carry another one so that I'm not tempted to cover something with my pistol just to use the light. So something that doesn't need to be covered. So that just doesn't mean you need to do it. It's just something that I do. So true precision, true-precision.com. They're doing some really cool stuff. And what else do I have here? Uh, merch on the site, officialjetcar.com. There's some new merch up there. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner, and uh, you can check that stuff out. And this table right here, Badass Workbenches. Man, badass-workbench.com. This thing is super solid. I, I am loving this desk. So go check out what they have going on and follow them on the socials as well. All right. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves on May 16th and is available in ebook, audiobook, and hardcover for pre order right now. To find out more about Larry Loftus, be sure and read his latest book, The Watchmaker's Daughter, and go to LarryLoftus.com, L A R R Y L O F T I S. Dot com. You can follow him on the social channels from there. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. Click in the upper right-hand corner on shop for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.